Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. I think about risk like, like a fingerprint, that when you take a risk, it leaves this indelible mark on the world that tells people who you are. All of your risk choices together show who you are as a person, how you've evolved and who you've become and even who you're becoming. And really who you've chosen to be, huh? Who you've chosen, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's a risk in, a, in and of itself. Michelle Wooker is an international bestselling author whose work on risk has influenced governments and large institutions. I'm the author of, uh, of uh, four books, most recently two on risk, the, the Gray Rhino, which came out in 2016, and You Are What You Risk, which came out in 2021, which takes a much more personal and, and psychological look at why some people see a big risk in front of them, do something, and other ones don't do anything at all and get squashed. Yeah, like I said earlier, you're, you're our first real expert on any topic. So, you know, it's like good to bring a little expertise to uh, to climbing gold every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, because normally we just have a bunch of climbers like rambling about things and, you know, they're all slightly hypoxic. They've all spent too much time at altitude. You know, you've got, uh, you've got some real ideas here. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that this is the only time we will have someone on this show whose work has impacted international economic policy. Michelle's 2016 book, The Grey Runner, tackled big system risk-taking, national debt, climate change. The book ended up influencing China's financial policy in ways that we will not try to understand today. We will hear from Michelle later in the season as well. I understood that not everybody in the world got excited about sovereign debt and yield spreads the way I did. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this this question about, you know, geeky policy debt finance questions, you know, why did one country see a big scary thing coming at it and do something to get out of the way and the other one didn't, is so relevant to just about everything in life. And the reason that you take risks of one kind and avoid risks of another, uh, like a real fingerprint, has three parts. There's the genetic part that you can't change, like the arches and the whorls and the loops on your finger. There's the part that depends on outside events, which you can't control, your upbringing, the things that have happened to you, the risks that went well, the ones that didn't so much. Uh, you think about perhaps a cut on your finger from a knife or a burn that indelibly changes your risk fingerprint. And the third part is where I spend a lot of my time thinking, and it's the things that you can control, the people around you, your environment, and the choices and habits that you have, and above all, how aware you are of what goes into why you take the risks that you do and pass on the ones that you do. So each of us carries our own unique risk profile, but our risk behavior is not set in stone. It's situational. What Michelle would call the risk ecosystem. And a good risk ecosystem starts with awareness, you know, taking that moment to assess the risk, to assess how you're dealing with it, how well prepared you are, what you're bringing to it. And that includes, you know, who are the people around you? How much knowledge do you have? How much practice do you have? How much preparation? What are the kinds of biases that you've brought to it or not? And I can't overemphasize the people around you part of it. 
because we make very different risk decisions in groups from the decisions we make when we're alone. When people are in a group, they make decisions that are more likely to be at either extreme, either much more risk seeking or much more risk avoidant. The, the lesson is that if you're in a group, you are less likely to make a middle of the road decision. It's gonna be one extreme or the other. And the other part of having people around you is if you've chosen well, if you've got people with different expertise, if you've got all of the sorts of skills and insights that you need, if they're coming from different perspectives and particularly different risk fingerprints, you are much more likely to be able to have a structured debate and exchange ideas if you're open to those different ideas. And there are examples of people with different attitudes outperforming people who are all coming from the same point of view. Uh, there's there's an example of some traders. Like commodity traders, not Benedict Arnold. One of them was a very much a, a leap before you look kind of person. And the other one was a take a deep breath, step back, let's think this through, let's be rational. And the two of them together were an outperforming team. And it was because they could each speak freely and exchange perspectives and respected each other and were able to come to a good decision. So that's the kind of relationship you want. Yes, I mean, you're perfectly describing a good climbing partnership where it's like two partners can communicate well, talk through risks. But the thing about it is that everybody thinks they're in a good partnership generally. I mean, and that's the thing with evaluating risk is that I think, especially for climbers, you always think you're doing a good job, but the problem is when you're just not and you don't know it. You know, it's like it's like the unknown unknowns where you're like, yeah, of course we're doing the right thing until it doesn't work out. And then in retrospect, you can see that you were making mistakes. But, you know, I think most climbers think that they're they're being very safe or risk averse or whatever ahead of time. But it's just hard to actually foresee the risks that you're taking. The better you are at taking chances with small things, the better you are going to be able to handle those surprises, the things that you can't anticipate. Uh, because some of those surprises will require you to make decisions quickly. And the better you are at seeing a risk and responding in general, the better prepared you are for something that nobody could possibly prepare for. Alex, I think it's probably time to introduce Captain Safety. It's like, how does Shasha describe Colin? Colin's pretty classic. I don't know. How... Colin Haley is one of America's best alpinists and really one of the best alpinists in the world, though he keeps such a low profile that I think a lot of people don't really appreciate how many difficult alpine ascents he's made in his life. And his friends jokingly call him Captain Safety because he takes you know, he takes safety pretty seriously. And yet he's out there doing these crazy alpine solos from time to time. So, you know, Colin Haley, a bit of an enigma. In the high stakes game of adventure climbing, alpinism and free soloing, succeeding doesn't always mean getting to the top. It means coming home. Some days it requires saying yes to risk and other days you've got to be willing to say no. But how do we make those decisions? And more importantly, how do we get better and making those decisions. Today, Colin Haley and I sit down and talk about climbing's riskiest pursuits and the choices that we make as climbers. But there are no easy answers. It starts 
with a little bit of real talk. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzcall. You're listening to Climbing Gold. I think we're going to have a hard freaking time turning this season into anything worth listening to because it's all like depressing no as way. fuck and like we can't we can't really <laughs> no. throw anybody under the bus and no, we no, can't no, really no, name no. names Dude. and like no. you know I'm like how the fuck are we going to edit this into anything that's worth oh, listening to no <laughs> this is all it's coming together Alex I'm like I'm I like, hope I you can... just keep in that sound clip of how the fuck are we going to edit this into something <laughs> worth listening to I don't think that alpine climbing is very inherently risky. I think it all depends on how you do it. My name is Colin Haley. The main focus of my life is climbing mountains. That's been the main focus of my life since I was about 17 years old, give or take. So about the last two decades. And it's made for a not very balanced life, but um, I've been enjoying myself. I feel like Somewhere deep inside of me, there's this remnant of a more primal human, (laughs) like from when humans were all hunter-gatherers. And I feel like having these really intense experiences in the mountains satisfies some sort of like more basic human urge inside of me. So you're saying you need to take risk. I'm not saying I need it, but I do think it makes life richer. I do think when you come back to the normal everyday existence, when you go and freeze your nuts off in the mountains, just coming down into a building, a heated (laughs) building, and then having like a plate of food, it's like, this is so amazing. When you have been through really harsh, intense experiences, the most like basic human comforts of modern life suddenly seem so amazing that's that's totally fair i was just thinking that a building it's like when you've been in cold wind all day and you're just like a structure of any kind oh totally i mean it's like we don't think about it but having a house is amazing taking a shower anytime you want warm shower you're like such luxury yeah i still only do that like once every four days though (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) of course What, uh, how did you get started alpine climbing? My dad started taking my brother and I climbing in the Cascade Mountains. He was kind of like a advanced weekend warrior. He would take uh, my brother and I climbing in the mountains a couple times a year. And um, rapidly, I became very obsessed. Colin, was there a climb that really felt like you were making a leap rather than just repeating uh, some of those classic climbs in the Cascades? When I was 17, um, a friend and I went and climbed the northeast buttress of Johannesburg Mountain in the North Cascades. It's a 5,000-foot route, and it's, you know, technical or semi-technical the whole way. And we did it right over the winter solstice, so the shortest days of the year, and during a totally stormy period of weather, which I would never do today, but when... I was in school and my partner had a full-time job. It's like we had, you know, a week set aside to climb and that's what the weather was. So we just went anyways. 
And you, uh, your, your parents let you go climb a 5,000 foot alpine route on the winter solstice in bad weather? Yeah. I mean, I don't think they were really that aware. But I mean, you, you know, your dad was enough of a climber that he could at least understand the forecast. He wasn't like, wow, it seems like a bad time to go alpine climbing. <laughs> um, one thing that I really appreciate is like all throughout my youth and teenage years and my whole life, really, is that my parents have given me a lot of my own responsibility, like very little handholding um, for better and for worse, but I think mostly for better. So, you know, they basically have always let me decide for myself what I want to do and rely on myself to not get into too much trouble. After the break, Alex and Colin traverse the Patagonian ice cap by accident. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. In his late teenage years, Colin was turning heads in the Seattle climbing community for bold alpine climbs and even bolder solos in the mountains, things like the North Ridge of Mount Stewart in alpine conditions. Most of his partners were a decade older. While many other climbing disciplines have young prodigies, seeing a baby-faced teenager who can barely shave running around in the perilous mountain train, it's not really a thing, at least in the U.S. Through the years, Colin evolved into one of the best at his craft. He became known for biting off big chunks of train and chewing quickly, often forgoing bivy gear to stay in motion for days on end. The Cascades, the Alaska Range, the Alps, Patagonia. Colin was adept at getting into and out of epics and then learning from them. It earned him a sort of wild man reputation amongst those who didn't know him, when in reality, Colin was learning to be the young person that older people can respect. I at least think that I'm a very conservative climber relative to what strangers imagine I'm like who've never climbed with me. But at the same time, obviously, the whole activity is taking risk for no real tangible purpose, you know? So there is a total paradox there. Quickly, I I forget, who gave you the nickname Captain Safety? (laughs) It might have been uh sarah my ex-girlfriend but i'm not sure it's totally possible that i gave it to myself (laughs) (laughs) which which actually goes which segues straight into my next question which is like this all sounds slightly schizophrenic where it's like basically you want to set yourself up for potential epics but sort of tricking yourself into it while doing it as safely as you can. You know what I mean? It's all like slightly like trying to trick yourself where it's like, okay, we're going to do this really carefully. We're going to choose the right objective. We're going to do it in the right weather. We're going to do it all very smart, but we want to do it, you know, we want to make sure it's just hardcore enough that it could turn totally epic. Yeah, I mean, it's totally absurd. There's no doubt about that. Um, And, you know, it's basically the same for your 
free soloing because you know what makes it special is the fact that any fall means death and but of course you're trying extremely hard to not fall and on the hardest solos you've done you know rehearsing it over and over so it's the same sort of absurd thing where it's seeking the high risk situation but at the same time trying as hard as you can to do it safely yeah the the hard free soloing though is like feels where there's just fewer variables you know it's like slightly easier to control the hard free soloing on rock just because you don't worry about the weather you don't worry about conditions you know you don't don't even worry about partners a lot of the time. The thing with alpine climbing is there's just so many more variables because it's just it's just a dynamic medium. You know, like everything is changing around you. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I th- I agree with you completely, but I do think they're equally absurd. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like the most memorable climbing experiences that I have, like my strongest memories, are always from the epics. You know, the project that you and I did together of climbing the Torre Traverse as a day climb, for me, the year that we almost did it but failed is like a way stronger memory than when we actually succeeded. Yeah. And so I feel like the really, the times when things don't go right in the mountains are kind of the most rich experiences of all it's funny though because i totally agree with you that that our failed attempt on the Torre traverse in a day is more memorable than our successful one in fact i don't even remember that many details of the successful climb but i I remember the the failed attempt pretty well because it was so epic epic on the Torre traverse we were two pitches from the top of Cerro Torre, having already climbed that day the equivalent of something like, I don't know, 60 pitches of hard climbing. Basically, the Torre Traverse connects Cerro Stanhart, Punta Heron, Torre Eger, and Cerro Torre. There is rock climbing, ice climbing, and a ton of shenanigans to connect to the four different summits. We had basically come extremely close to completing the goal. We'd been climbing continuously for about 18 hours at that point, so we were starting to get pretty fatigued, but not totally work yet. The weather had just been getting worse and worse and worse, and we had just been pushing on and pushing on. You know, I mean, the the winds in Patagonia are, are legendary. That last pitch of Cerro Torre is a fairly dangerous pitch because there's very little protection. Uh, one of the seasons I was there, a woman was trying to pitch her tent, and the tent caught the wind, and it carried her off like a sail, like she got thrown through the air and got injured when she landed. You know, basically, she went paragliding without the glider. <laughs> The wind had gotten so strong that I was genuinely concerned about getting blown off while climbing. And, and actually, one, one way to visualize the wind in Patagonia is to think that there is no other landmass at that latitude anywhere else on the planet. So the wind just rips all the way around the globe, and Patagonia is the only thing that it hits. So you're basically getting the full force of global wind hitting one little point. If you get blown off balance with your axes and not very solid rhyme, and you take a 30 meter fall and break both your ankles or something in a brewing storm, I mean, that probably would be like a death sentence kind of thing. So you had a choice to make. We could have maybe pushed through the storm and reached the summit of this thing and then tried to retreat back, repel back down the other side of the mountain back to where we had come from. That's option one. Risk it finish the last two pitches without being blown off the mountain, achieve summit glory, rappel down the correct side of the mountain, and get back to base camp. A lot of ifs in there. 
we spent several hours uh, just like hanging off a couple ice screws on this like 40 degree uh, ice slope, spooning and just getting knocked around by crazy winds. It was the middle of the night when we kind of stopped and then we waited until dawn. And then when the sun started to rise, it was like black clouds everywhere and howling wind. We were like, oh, my God. We finally said, OK, this isn't happening. We need to just save ourselves. I mean, I was just concerned about getting off the mountain alive. Had we summited the mountain, we would have had to rappel down the east face of this of this peak, the which is called the compressor route on Saratora. And it's all rocky. And in that kind of high wind, it's likely that your rappel ropes will blow away and basically get tangled in rocks. And then your ropes get stuck and then you have to cut your ropes. And then it becomes like a serious survival thing because you don't you can't really rappel if your ropes get destroyed. And so instead, we chose to go down the west side, which is uh, it's an ice face the whole way because it comes off the southern ice cap. It's like all covered in ice. The thing with repelling an ice wall is that your ropes can't get stuck on anything because the ice is so smooth. I knew that once we got down onto flat ground, then it's just a long toiling slog. We walked for 20 hours without food to walk back around this mountain range. You know, I mean, technically we failed on the objective that we were trying, but it was a pretty remarkable experience because, you know, we still learned. I mean, I still I still circumnavigated the entire southern ice cap, basically, you know, walking for 20 hours around this mountain range. In the grand scheme of things, walking for a whole day is like not that big a deal compared to getting your rope stuck and then and then dying alone on a face, you know. And I think that's one of the things with climbing is that even failures are typically great growth experiences where it's like still my one of my well, that's still the longest push I've ever had in the mountains. I mean, 54 hours of continuous exercise is like a pretty long time. Wait, how, how long were you moving for? Yes, f- 54 hours. I think that was the first time I've ever experienced sort of audiovisual hallucinations at the end, because I remember when we were hiking the final couple miles like in the forest. I kept seeing shiny things and thinking that we were walking into somebody's camp or like thinking that I'd hear people talking or something and thinking like, oh, there must be someone around the corner. There must be food or something, you know, like just keep thinking that like things are happening and you're actually just stumbling through the woods like in, in, you know, light rain in the dark. I was like, this is so heinous. That's the only time I've ever been quite so like that my mind is kind of frayed like that. It's like I'm like hearing things that are happening. Yeah, I've actually um, had those kind of hallucinations from sleep deprivation a bunch of times. I very vividly remember the first time was when I was in high school uh, climbing in the enchantments with like a 24 hour day. By now, I've also had two days of like 70 plus hours nonstop without any that's sleep. Not, that's <laughs> technically not even a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> what, uh, wait, what, what have been your 70 hour pushes? That is so long. Both of them were climbing and then descending Sultana, a.k.a. Mount Foraker. And in both instances, it was because I went without bivy gear and then got hit by a terrible storm basically on the summit. Whoa. Wait, so you had the same epic twice on the same mountain? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After the break, we find out what turkeys have to do with alpine climbing. And we get epic on Sultana. What the fuck do turkeys have to do with Alpine climbing? <laughs> I soloed a route on the south face of Sultana called the Infinite Spur. Sultana is the second highest peak in the Alaska range behind Denali. 
And the Infinite Spur is one of the most sought after prizes in alpine climbing. It's big, like almost 10,000 feet big. It's complicated on both the ascent and the descent, and the weather often sucks. Colin had wanted to solo it for a long time, and that year it was in almost perfect condition. In preparation, he'd done it with a partner a few days earlier. The climb itself went super well. It was something, I think, like 12 hours from the base to the summit. That's blazing fast. And I got to the summit, and the weather still looked good. And then I did the like first maybe like 3,000 vertical feet of the descent, and the weather was slowly starting to deteriorate, but it didn't look that bad. And then all of a sudden, it socked in completely pretty soon after it started snowing, started getting really windy. Colin knew there was a storm coming, but the forecast he'd gotten before predicted that he had plenty of time to spare. The descent off of Sultana, it's not very technical, but it is extremely long. And it's in the whole central Alaska range. It's one of the most exposed places to wind and storms. The whole ridge is just glaciated ridge. And with no rock, as soon as it becomes whiteout conditions, you just can't see anything. But because it's a more broad ridge with like different crevasses and domes and bulges all over the place, it makes route finding in a whiteout extremely difficult. Because basically I would make a little bit of progress and then I would just have to sit there and wait for hours until I could catch a tiny glimpse of terrain and then keep going. The snow was getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And yeah, I set off a whole bunch of avalanches but it was all in places where I could stay right on the crest of a ridge, making steps on the crest, and then my foot would kick off another slab that falls down to the side. With tons of fresh snow, your ability to tell where the crevasses are or not is diminished. And, and I had no bivy gear at all. So basically, all the time that I had to wait not moving, I was just sitting in a blizzard way high up on this Alaskan mountain in my jacket and my puff pants, literally just sitting there, <laughs> slowly dying, basically. <laughs> you know, it could have been a descent that took seven hours or something, but instead it took something like two and a half days. I don't remember exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the whole experience was ex incredibly epic. Looking back at the experience, Colin would later write, I'm proud of having made the first solo ascent of the Infinite Spur, but in the end, it wasn't worth it in terms of all the risk I was exposed to. As things turned out, it was simply way too dangerous, and I'm not proud of that. Colin, listening to, to that story, it makes me think about how much alpine climbing is at this nexus of decision-making and probability of outcomes. On one hand, your margin for error was razor thin once the storm hit because of how you chose to climb. Then you also made a series of incredible decisions that got you down alive. And some people might look at that and say, hey, he was unlucky. And other might say, other people might say, you were really lucky you survived. Like, how does luck play into this, in your opinion? Totally. And, you know, I think that every climbing accident can be viewed as a combination of bad luck and making the wrong decision. And 
Sometimes it's 99% bad luck and 1% making the wrong decision. And sometimes it's 99% making the wrong decision and 1% bad luck. But it's always some combination of the two. To me, one of the big problems with alpine climbing, and the same problem exists with things like big wall speed climbing and free soloing, is that the more you are willing to compromise on safety, the more you are able to reap big performance benefits. The opposite of this is sport climbing, where basically you have the same high level of safety like with no correlation to performance. And on the other hand, in alpine climbing, if you climb on the lightest possible single rope, like an 8.5 millimeter versus an old school 10.5 millimeter, you definitely climb faster and more easily on the skinny rope, but it's more likely to get cut on a sharp edge if you fall, which doesn't happen that often, but it definitely does happen. You know, I personally know of multiple people who have died from cut ropes. You know, every time you stop to make a belay, if you make a belay quickly with a couple pieces, you save time and you save energy. But if you take your time to like make a four piece anchor out of like the best possible placements, you have a slightly more certainty that that anchor won't fail. You know, how big of a rack you bring on the climb in general, whether you bring two ropes to give yourself the option of easy retreat, whether you go for it in a marginal weather window or whether you play it safe and say, no, I'll just sit in base camp until I get a better forecast. In alpine climbing, there are a million ways in which the more you're willing to sacrifice safety, the more you're able to accomplish. And so in alpine climbing, you have to constantly be faced with this temptation of cutting the safety margins but you have to not be too seduced by it to the point where you end up killing yourself. You know, big wall speed climbing, it's exactly the same thing. And I would imagine that, Alex, you can relate to these questions from like doing the nose speed record where, you know, if you want to have really high safety margins, you can't go nearly as fast as if you're willing to do it in a really sketchy manner. Yeah, the difference though is that with the no speed record, it all feels a little more visceral. Like whenever you take more risks, like you feel it, like it feels scarier. I think the, the challenge with alpinism is that most of the time you don't really know if you're taking more risk. You're sort of, you know, it's like you, you can sort of rationalize different ways, but you're like, ah, oh, you know, this seems okay. This seems okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like often in alpine climbing, you'll do, uh, you know, a bunch of climbs and you'll never need those extra pitons you brought and you'll never need that extra rope you brought and you'll never need that inreach in the bottom of your backpack, and you'll never need that extra gas canister, and so it'll seem silly a lot of the time, and then one other time you won't bring those things, and you'll end up deeply regretting it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's true, that it's often making these decisions that you might get away with and not really notice that you took a risk one time, and a different time you might think that you're being really safe and then realize that you actually took a big risk. There's a, there's a great metaphor that I've heard about Thanksgiving turkeys. Say you're a turkey, you're on the farm, 
you're surrounded by other turkeys. Like every day people come out and they feed you. They're super nice. Everyone is getting fed day after day. And it's like that for hundreds of days. And then November rolls around. And the last day of the turkey's life comes as a, as a shock. You know, it, it basically re- makes everyone rethink, or, you know, makes the turkey rethink everything they ever sort of assumed to be true. Yeah. So you're saying like maybe someone might be taking lots of risk in their climbing, but it's always working out. So they're like, oh, I guess this is all fine. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure that that happens to a large degree. Um, yeah, but don't yeah. you kind of worry that that's happening to us too? And I'm kind of like, oh, is is that me? Is that you? <laughs> you know, because it's like if if something were to happen to you in the mountains, people would look back at you know your 70 hour epic on Sultana and be like, oh, he was really sketchy. He was close to the edge. You know, it's like the the, totally. the captain safety moniker was total BS. And it's right. like sort of unfortunate because uh, you know I, I don't think that's true, but but it's easy to to recast events. You know, there is no right answer as to how much risk is the right amount of risk to take. The whole activity is absurd and the whole activity accomplishes nothing productive and always involves some amount of risk. So it's totally silly to judge someone for taking too much risk or too little risk. It's totally arbitrary. You know, I mean, like, I think about that with myself. If I live to old age, people will be like, wow, he did an incredible job of, you know, like preparing and training for and managing all the risks that he took. But, you know, if I die soloing next year, people are going to be like, wow, he was really sketchy. Like he did all kinds of crazy things. It's it's you can't really quantify it. You know, I think that if you were to die soloing, I mean, to be honest, it wouldn't be shocking. Like, I think someone would have to be almost, you know, deluded if they were to be shocked by you dying soloing. But I think there's no right answer. People, there's no amount of risk that people should or shouldn't take. I do think that people should strive to be conscious of the risks that they're taking so that they're taking them by choice and not by accident. One of my kind of pet peeves is that Every time a well-known climber dies, there's a whole bunch of media that says, well, this is just part of the risk of alpine climbing. End of story. You know, the implication is that alpine climbing is just inherently dangerous. And if you do it, at some point you might get unlucky and die and otherwise you might be okay saying things like that is super counterproductive. And I think it's a really bad idea. People who are 19 years old, who are super excited about alpine climbing and are trying to get better and better and dreaming of all these things they want to do, they shouldn't be hearing people saying, oh, alpine climbing, this is just part of the game. And sometimes you get unlucky. They should be hearing the way you play the game has a huge impact on how likely you are to get hurt. There is an inherent level of background risk that just adds up with more time free soloing or more time alpine climbing. And then there's also a humongous element of how you play the game. And and I think we both agree that how you play the game probably has a bigger impact than the background risk. But the thing is that the background risk can sometimes be 
pretty loud background noise you know it's like it's like occasionally it's it's quite risky in the background and so you know it's just always hard to know i do think that the conundrum has to always be there um I don't think there's like a way around it, you know, because if you always tried to make alpine climbing as safe as a well-bolted overhanging sport crag, you would never get up anything. I mean, you would have so much gear, you wouldn't do anything, literally. And, you know, this is something that I've been wondering about recently because um, I have done a lot of hard alpine soloing and a bunch of my most proud accomplishments have been soloing. But I do feel like, to some degree, like, if you want to push harder and harder, the amount of risk you take starts to become too much. There is a huge trade-off between performance and safety. Thanks, Michelle and Colin, for sharing your perspectives. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape the Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Fitz Call, with additional help from Austin Syedak. Additional editing and mixing by Matt Martin. Production help from Lauren Delaney-Miller, Evan Phillips, and Anya Miller. Music today by Brendan O'Connell, Cordelia Zars, and me. Our executive producers are Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape and Beer, and Jonathan Redzik and Ben Endy for RXR Sports. Please leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Instagram at Climbing Gold. Thanks for listening.